The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bibles with me, please. If you have them, let's go to the book of Revelation and chapter number 15 this evening. Revelation 15, we'll recap a few things as uh, we are making our way out of uh, what we've been discussing to be the uh, midpoint of tribulation, uh, that segment of events that kind of bridged the gap from the first three and a half years into the last three and a half years as we move along. And uh, But as we have always done since chapter 1 and verse number 19, I want to recap that outline because I, I, I want you to keep that in your mind. I want you to be able to say 10 years from now, if someone were to say, what is the, how's the book of Revelation? What does it hold? At least you can say that, well, first off, it uh, holds the things that John Saul, that's right. He talked about the things that, and wrote about the things that he saw. What chapter is that in? Chapter 1. And uh, that chapter 1 holds that right there. Then he's, uh, God told him to write about the things that are. And that's found in chapters what? 2 and 3. And then, of course, uh, that involves the things of those seven churches uh, there uh, of Asia Minor. And, of course, uh, the different aspects of what God was dealing with those particular churches about. But, of course, uh, prophetic ramifications as well, futuristic um, uh, uh, signs that would be going on to that there as well for the church age. And then the last thing, not only what he saw, and not only the things that are, but the things that are after these things. And what, what chapter does that start in? Chapter 4, all the way through the rest of the book, right? And so we don't even need that slide, right? You got it all in your mind. You see it. every. T- if I were to ask you, you automatically picture that in your mind because you've seen it uh, week after week after week. But that holds the kind of the outline and uh, just the overall gist of the book. Uh, now, there's a lot else that goes into it. We understand that. We've been studying that week after week after week. Uh, but at this point, we've kind of sorted out the midpoint of tribulation and, and uh, what kind of, uh, kind of flows through it. And so just kind of recapping that, going all the way back to chapter number 11, 12, 13, 14, and now uh, as we will conclude here in 15 tonight, we've uh, seen several things take place. As the first half of tribulation is coming to a close, this midpoint bridges us over to the second half, beginning with Satan. Uh, He's cast down to the earth and he's bound there. Uh, Remember we read in Job where he would go to and fro uh, before the Lord and he was the accuser of the brethren and uh, bringing accusations, particularly even about Job there in that particular book. uh, But at this time we find that he's cast down, he's bound to the earth and and no longer has access to do that any longer. And so because of that and in his anger and his wrath, he says, I'm going to attack and I'm going to bring my vengeance and wrath uh, to the people that I can get my hands on to. And uh, in his mind, that's going to be the people of God, the, uh, the believers, uh, Jewish believers. Of course, as he goes to try to attack them and to eliminate them from the earth, the Lord himself protects them and takes them into the wilderness and flees to Botsra, and uh, he protects them there. Now, because, uh, because of the fact that um, that he's unable to uh, unable to reach them, the remnant there in the wilderness. 
He starts to go after others. He goes after, of course, uh, any um, believers that are not Jews, Gentile believers. He starts to go after uh, Orthodox Jews, those that believe uh, and hold to the Old Testament philosophy of things and uh, continuing to try to make sacrifices and remission for their own sins and such. Those who, have not, who believe in Yahweh but not have accepting Jesus as the Messiah yet. And uh, so they're not willing to take him and, and, uh, and to uh, believe in him as their Messiah, the Antichrist as the Messiah. And uh, so he goes after them and he goes after 144,000 as we looked at there as well. Uh, but uh, through all of that, um, we find that the Antichrist is killed more than likely by the three kings that he'll end up eliminating later on. And uh, after a time, he's resurrected. Uh, the Antichrist is resurrected. Uh, the Antichrist then kills those three kings and eliminates them and the two witnesses that have been there uh, preaching the gospel throughout that time. And uh, so then that puts everybody on notice, right? So the seven that are left of the 10 uh, world leaders are like, wow, uh, yeah, I think we're going to get on board with this guy and uh, follow whatever he wants. And so does the rest of the world as well. In doing so, then the Antichrist then takes himself into the temple, the Jewish temple. He walks in there and he sets himself up in the temple as if he is God and declares to be the Messiah, if you may, and pretends to be as such. And so then he claims to be God. Eventually he will leave the uh, temple. And then, of course, we find that he raises the Satan then because of that raises up the false prophet. The false prophet raises up an image in the temple to be worshipped uh, by those who are there whenever the Antichrist is not around. And uh, that brings everyone to the point where here the false prophet institutes the mark of the beast and he will execute anyone who will not take the mark. And so it's come to that point where during this midway point where uh, people are going to have to make a decision. They're either going to have to make the decision to side with God Almighty, Jehovah God, uh, the only true God, or they're going to side with the Antichrist, the false one. If they side with the Antichrist, they take this mark, they're able to buy, they're able to sell, they're able to live life as normal as it can be, right, during the tribulation period. If they don't take the mark, then they are scrambling just to, to get by. Many times they might be hiding out in the wilderness, hiding out places, just trying to escape being killed, escape being martyred and such. And uh, we see as we move through this last half of tribulation, martyrdom really is kind of uh, the norm. And at least for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, who have accepted him, other than the uh, remnant that is out there in the wilderness, uh, there's people being killed for their faith left and right over and over and over again. And so that's kind of the events that brought us from the first half and here into this, the beginning of the second half that we'll see in chapter 16 as we move along in the weeks ahead. But here... As we are transitioning out of, of mid-tribulation, what we've come to realize is here's what the second half of tribulation pretty much holds. Martyr, martyrdom for believers and any Jews who will not take the mark, and relatively peaceful times for the unbelievers. Why do I say it's relatively uh, peaceful? Because they're able to still go to the store and buy. They're still able to sell like normal. They're able to kind of go about their daily routine as normal as it can be with tons of the world being destroyed and all the calamities that have taken place, we, we've, we've come to know the term, the new norm or the new normal in our day and age. They, at the second half of tribulation, will have a whole different meaning of the new normal for them, but they will have whatever the new normal is for them. They'll be able to enjoy that. The unbeliever will be, and they'll have relative peace 
uh, for a period of time until the bowl or the vile judgments begin to be poured out, in which we will talk about even more in depth next week as we get into chapter 16. But uh, here in chapter 15, uh, we, it, 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 we said it serves as one of those bookends, right? The bookends that, uh, that uh, segment that midpoint of tribulation. Chapter 11 was the beginning of it. Chapter 15 is the ending of it. And in between there is the, the 12, chapter 12, 13, and 14. And uh, they're kind of uh, holding, hold, sandwiches it all together. And so chapter number 15 is going to bring us completely out, transition us all along the path as we begin and in moving into this last half of tribulation. Uh, but with the Lord's help, we're going to endeavor to finish the entire chapter in one night. You say, Pastor, that would be awesome. Like normally we get through like a verse. Like we get through one word and somehow it takes an hour to do so. And you're saying we're going to get through an entire chapter. It's going to be an endeavor, that's for sure. But we're going to do it nevertheless. And so read with me, please, in chapter 15, verse number one. And it says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of, the, of glass, having the harps of God. Verse number three, and they uh, sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou uh, King of saints. Verse number four, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in purple and white linen, and having their uh, breasts girded with golden girdles. And uh, one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of, of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke uh, from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Our Father, we come to you tonight. We thank you for your, your love and, and your goodness in our life. And Lord, I ask now that you would just take this time as we study your word, that you'd help me as I deliver the message here this evening to, to speak your word clearly and precisely. And Lord, I ask now that you would help our hearts to be in tune with your spirit as he guides us into this truth tonight. Lord, I ask that you would be our glorified through all that is done, through our attentiveness to your word and through the proclamation of it. And Lord, I ask now that your will be accomplished as it helps us to draw closer to you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we have, uh, have even sung tonight through all three of the songs, the love of God is something to really con to consider. I mean, we, the fact that He loved us enough to come to this earth, the fact that He loves His creation uh, to have a plan for their redemption, right? I mean, and we've seen that unfold, and we've seen how we're, a person can come to know Christ as their Savior. And even through this time, 
which we'll talk about his judgment. And we know that he's just. A couple weeks ago, we talked about that fact. And, and uh, the judgment that he's going to pour out is going to be righteous. It's going to be perfect. And uh, it's not going to be uh, adulterated in any way. It's, it's, gonna be, it's going to be right and just. And so in all of that, we see his plan unfolding. We see his goodness unfolding. And uh, as, we, as we come into this time, it just helps us to uh, remember that God's still on his throne. And even some of these judgments that are unfolding reminds us of that as well as we will note as we move on. But tonight, as chapter 15 kind of serves as that springboard, uh, taking us from the bridge uh, of the midpoint tribulation into this last half, I want us to see how it's going to bring us to the point to see that where God is preparing for that final judgment. I want to go back to this slide real quick here. You'll note here, mid-tribulation, the second half. How long is the second half of tribulation total? It's what? Three and a half years, right? And you notice that this bowl, or as the, as the Scripture puts it here, vials. And the reason, you'll hear me say vile or bowls, because and the reason why I, I use that interchangeably is because when you, if you were to go online and to study anything through Revelation or, or read some books and, and everything, if they don't hold to a strictly uh, King James Version uh, usage, then you'll, read, you'll see, hear them saying terms like bowls, all right? And so then you might be confused as, well, what, does that, what are they even talking about? So I use those interchangeably here uh, because it's talking about a vessel, a vessel of God's wrath being poured out. And so the, the, the scriptures as we read will be vials. This, this picture here, of course, holds a bowl, all speaking of the same thing, God's wrath being stored up in a vessel the, the being able to be able to contain something, right? And so here we, we, we have this kind of hovering over it's towards the end of the, the last half of tribulation. And the reason for that is because I believe in chapter 16, when all of these judgments start to unfold and to be poured out, it's, it's right at the last part of it. Because it comes in with the battle of Armageddon and, and Jesus' return is, is imminent and such. And so, uh, so as we see this chapter 15, I want us to consider that it's really... It's showing a preparation, if you may, a preparation for judgment and the Lord's final acts uh, for this age being taking place and coming to fruition. And so with that thought in mind, with preparation for judgment in mind, let me say number, number one tonight that God's judgment, when it comes, God's judgment will be finished. At the, when, it's, when it's all said and done, what he said was going to happen is going to happen. And what his plan was to bring it to an end is going to unfold and bring it all to an end. It's not like he's just going to fall short in some way. It's not like he's going to not complete everything he said he's going to complete. His judgment will be finished. And notice with me in verse number one what it says again. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven, what's it say? Last plagues in them is filled up with the wrath of God. And so once again, John's attention is directed into the heavenly realm, and he witnesses another sign, as he says, that is great and wonderful, marvelous and great, he says there in verse number one. And uh, he says that it's a sign, or in, we could say a symbol. And uh, in fact, chapter 15 is, is full of signs, and we'll discuss them as we move along. But we see as we 
Consider the judgment of God coming to its finishing point. Uh, verse number one says that he saw in, in heaven this great sign that was both mar- great and marvelous, and, and out of heaven seven angels having the seven last plagues. And so it begins with these seven angels holding these vials ready for the judgment of God to be poured out. And uh, it's meaning that it, not only is it the last of days that is about to come, but the last of his judgments are about to be poured out. And uh, these are going to be the last of the judgments that have been required by God through his old covenant with Israel as well. We remember that the purpose for the time of tribulation is to bring to a conclusion uh, the judgment for what Israel had done in breaking the laws and covenant that they had made with God back in the Old Testament. See, all of that is happening during the seven-year period was appointed for Israel in keeping with the promises or the covenant that they had made with God earlier. Let me draw your attention to Daniel chapter 9. You can flip there if you'd like, or just listen as I read. But Daniel was told by Gabriel in Daniel chapter 9 and verse number 24. He said, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So he said that there would be 70 sets of seven or 70 weeks, as it says there at the beginning of verse number 24, including this final set of seven, which we know is the tribulation. 69 sevens or 69 sets of seven years had been completed up from that point where Babylon taking control up until Jesus's first coming. We discussed this through the Daniel study, and we've referenced this in times past as well through this study in Revelation as also. Now, this last seven years of tribulation is that last week, the seven years that, have been, are, that are left. Remember when I had the time frame up here, and it had uh, Babylon, and it had the, Greek impi- uh, the Medes and the Persians, and the Greek Empire, and then uh, the, uh, the, the uh, Democratic alliances and such, and, and we, we had a point where it was kind of like, uh, it was a certain color line, and it stopped, it said 69, and then there, the last sevens here were here or during the tribulation period, and that gap that split it was what we call the church age, right? And uh, the, this, uh, the church age that we're in right now. We, we, we likened it to that of a basketball game, remember? And at the end of a basketball game, uh, the, the score's close, and, and so as, as part of the, the uh, philosophy of trying to play the clock, uh, the coach will tell his players to purposefully foul the other team. Why? Because when they foul the other team, what happens? It stops the clock. The, st- the time pauses. Now, is the game just not continue on? No, actually, the game continues on because then after so long, they get in the, uh, they, they get in the double bonus. And so they, for every foul, no matter what it is, they get to shoot free throws. And so even though the time is not moving, there's actually play going on. And the, uh, either whether they're in the one-on-one or the double bonus, the uh, person that got fouled is staying at the free throw line, and they're shooting free throws. What happens if they make the basket? Nothing, right? Because the time's not running, and it's just, you know, just kind of time to play around, right? No, they, the point counts. And so it's some strategy trying to keep the, the, the time from running out, hoping that the other team misses uh, the, the, the free throws so that they can then get, the other team can get the ball and score to take over the lead and so, so on. 
But even though the time has paused, or it's a timeout, if you may, in, in, in certain ways, it's, this clock is not running, the game is still going on. So let's think of this as like God called uh, a timeout, if you may. Like the time, the clock has quit running. 69 of those sevens have uh, went by, but there's still one more to go. And he just says, hey, hold on. We're going to continue on with life, but the actual clock won't start running until the tribulation period again. And that's where we're at here. That's what's taking place. And, and so Gabriel tells Daniel that the 70 weeks are all determined to bring judgment against Israel for the trespasses that they had done uh, according to the covenant that they had made with God earlier. And this last seven years is the culmination of it, the completion of that judgment. And so 70 years, including this time of tribulation, have been appointed to Israel, as the angel said, and that appointment was for the purpose of addressing the sins of Israel under the old covenant, as we've already studied. So God is obligated to pour out his wrath on Israel under the terms of the covenant, which that will finally be completed during these seven years. Think of it this way. You go uh, to the car dealership and you look at buying a new car and you're sitting there with the salesperson and they say, we can make you a great deal for just $550 a month. You can have this. Oh yeah, that's a great deal, right? Uh, I want more something along the lines of like $2 a month, right? But uh, can you get me somewhere in that range? But whatever the case might be, whatever the, the term is, and they say, well, we can get the, 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 term, the, the payment down even further. We can get it down to $300 a month. And we could just make it a 12-year loan and all this type of crazy stuff. And they just keep adding on time and time and all that type of stuff. But anyway, so you're sitting there with the salesperson. They're, you're talking about the agreement and all that type of thing. And you agree to a certain amount per month to pay for it. And, uh, and for a certain length of time to be able to pay it. Now, if you don't come through with making the payments in a timely fashion, that contract that you sign, what is going to happen? They're going to repossess it, right? You're going to look out your window one day and some strange guy is going to be there with a, uh, uh, with a tow truck and he's going to be picking up your car off the side of the road and taking it away. You're like, what are you doing? Why are you stealing my car? He says, no, you didn't keep... You're into the bargain. You didn't keep your contract. Well, Israel made a contract, if you may, a covenant with, with God, and they hadn't kept their end. And so as part of the agreement, God says, well, when you don't keep your end, there's going to be some judgment. There's going to be some wrath. And that's what tribu the tribulation period is all about. Now, everyone that's alive, is, they, they get involved in it. But it's particularly focused on Israel, and God is obligated to do so because of that. However, though, listen, 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 God is obligated to bring his wrath upon unbelieving Israel because they had made a promise with him back in the Old Testament that they would keep his laws and they didn't. However, though, there's a group of Israel that is sitting safe in the wilderness. Why aren't they having to pay? For the for the for the uh, the uh, commitment and the and the covenant that they made those years ago, because they entered in a brand new one. They had trusted Jesus as their savior, and Jesus had already paid for that. 
When he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for us, and so we don't have to. And so as believers, we escape the wrath that we ought to have to experience because of our sin. And those believers, those Jewish believers in the wilderness, they're escaping it even in in tribulation because they've come under a brand new covenant as well. But the unbelieving Jews, they're still bound to the old covenant. And so therefore, they're having to experience this. And we we read in Zechariah chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. Awake! O sword against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and I will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. And so God uses the judgments to cut off some of Israel and refine some of the others. And uh, while many unbelieving Jews will perish during this time, God is going to use this process to refine some and bring them back to a, a focus on him. Isaiah 48 verses 8 through 12 tells us, yea, thou heardest not, yea, thou knewest not. Yea, from that time that thine ear was not open, for I knew that thou wouldest deal very treacherously, and was called a transgressor from the room, from uh, from the womb. Uh, my namesake will I de- uh, defer mine anger, and uh, for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, uh, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory to another. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel. My, uh, my called, I am he. I am the first. I also am the last. And so we find that when it all comes to the end, God's judgment is going to be finished. The purpose for it is going to come to fruition. And the reason behind it is going to be played out. But not only do we see that God's judgment will be finished, but number two tonight, we also notice as we move into verses two through four, that the just, the saved, they will worship. And look what the Bible says in verses two through four. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over the mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments are made manifest. See, the sign that John sees here, as he read there in verse number 1, he, another sign in heaven was, he saw, it has multiple parts, and it begins with, uh, it says, a, a glass sea, and it says there in verse number three, uh, verse number uh, two, I'm sorry, uh, a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, obviously, the sea, glass, and fire don't normally mix, right? That doesn't seem like it's uh, something that would ordinarily mix well or go together. And we have to appreciate John's desire to uh, try to describe a scene that he's, uh, he has seen without some type of a reference point. Could you imagine? I mean, with all of the advances that we have today, with uh, being able to have seen things that 
without ever actually seeing it physically in person, we can open up our phone and Google about anything and see pictures of it and all of that. Uh, we could see 3D renderings of things. They make printers that print out 3D images now, right? I mean, all that we have today. And we, could you imagine being taken into this time and trying to figure out how to explain it to somebody else? That'd be tough. Let alone put yourself in John's shoes back in the first century, right? And so here, here he is, he's seeing this scene, and he's doing his best to pull at whatever he can so that he can describe it as he writes it down. And we got to appreciate his, his desire here to do so. And he references elements that he knows from the earth, and he, he combines them in impossible combinations. A sea made out of glass mingled with fire. There's, it doesn't even seem to be logical or seem like, how would that even, what does that even mean? You know what I mean? But he's trying his best to be able to paint with words the picture that he's seen. So uh, he's seen something that is otherworldly, no doubt. And he says this, that standing on the sea are those who had been victorious over the beast, uh, which this would be a reference, obviously, to those who had been martyred during this time those that have been killed during this time of tribulation. Now, if that, and since that is the case, he says in verse number two, uh, he saw those standing on this sea who had victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. They're standing on, the, on this glass with harps, the harps of God in their hand. He says that they had victory over this, this one though. So if they're in heaven and if they're standing with the harps of God, we know that they have been killed, they're, they have died, and they're in heaven now because of their faith in the Lord. What, is that, what does that mean then? That John says that their death was actually victory. That dying during this time was an actual victory. And it was a victory because it removes that person from the influence of the beast and bling, brings them to a place of rest. Now, in the world's culture, Dying is a loss. When you go to war and you die, you've lost that battle. But here in this situation, John is saying that their death was actually a victory for them. And so once a saint, a saint dies in tribulation, they pass from the dominion of the enemy unto the dominion of the Lord. It sounds like a win-win for me. It sounds like a good situation to me. And since they've left the world behind, there is no longer in, within the reach of the enemy who's now been cast down to this one place, the earth, so they can't be influenced by him. And uh, so doing these things, um, they're overcoming the beast and his mark, as John says. They, uh, they never gave in to the demands of worship. They never gave in to the demands to take the mark. And so doing these things had resulted in the opportunity for them to be with the Lord, and their opportunity of being with the Lord was a victory in their life. And so we find that they're standing before the Lord. They've lost their life because uh, they, they had trusted in the Lord and chosen Him over uh, ease. They chose chosen Him over what was convenient. They chose Him over their life. And in fact, my friends, they overcame the mark because they never loved their physical life more than they loved the Lord. And that's the type of eternal perspective that every believer ought to have. Even us today, we ought to have the perspective of the Lord. I love the Lord more than I love my own life. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, as Paul would write as well. Uh, 
And so one who seeks to gain life, Jesus said, he'll lose it. But one who will lose his life for his sake shall gain it. Next, we see that these tribulation saints, they're singing with harps and they sing the song, it says, of Moses and of the Lamb. Now, here in these verses, there's two different songs that are mentioned. We see in verse number three, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb is recorded right here in verses three and four. We read these, this song, the lyrics of this song. In verse number three, the song of the Lamb goes like this, great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, thy, uh, and glorify thy name. For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And so the words of the song of the Lamb are to praise Jesus specifically, and while the, the song never specifically uses the name Jesus, we obviously know who the lamb is and he's the lamb of the god slain before the foundation of the world and so the singers declare that jesus is the righteous king of all nations and soon the lamb, lamb will be worshiped by all nations as, as well and these statements i believe indicate that the tribulation is coming to an end soon and that jesus's time to return to the earth and to set up his kingdom is approaching rather quickly but the Bible says not only do they sing the song of the Lamb, but they also sing the song of Moses, which if we were to study out Scripture, there's two possible choices that would fit rather well that have already been outlined throughout Scripture to be able to help us understand maybe exactly what they sing, since it's not included here in this chapter of chapter 15. If you want to go over to Deuteronomy chapter 32, we'll look at one particular just for a moment, and we'll look at the other in Exodus as well. But Deuteronomy 32 now, it's a, a rather long chapter, so we won't read all the verses. I'll reference a few, and we'll, tell, we'll, we'll make our way down uh, through this chapter and, and highlight a few things and, and point out how this song might, uh, 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 how it might apply and be applicable to the song that they're singing here. But in Deuteronomy 32, verse number 5, we're going to read verse 5 through 7, then verses 17 through 18, verses 35 through 37, and then verse number 41. So picking up in verse number 5 first says, they have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Uh, do ye thus require the Lord of foolish people and unwise? Is not he the father that hath brought thee? Uh, hath he not made thee and established thee? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father and he will show thee. Thy elders and they will tell thee. They sacrificed in the devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods uh, that came newly up, whom our fathers feared not. Of the rock they begat, uh, they begat thee, thou art unmindful, that begat thee, thou art unmindful, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. To me uh, belongeth vengeance and recompense, their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come up, uh, upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself of his servants when he seeth that their, great, that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. And they shall say, where are their gods, their rock in whom they trusted? If it went uh, my glittering sword, glittering sword uh, and uh, mine hand take hold of, on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and I will reward them that hate me. See, 
Moses is about to die and the, and the nation's going to enter into the promised land without him. Uh, and he warns here of days of vengeance when the Lord will particularly and directly deal with their sins. In the future, uh, Israel, he's saying, will become faithless. They'll begin worshiping other gods. They'll be overlooking the one true God, uh, the rock who saved them. And as a result, the Lord will bring calamities upon the, his people. And uh, when he sees that their strength is gone, it says that they'll be broken. He brings them to a low to break them of the rebellious hearts. And uh, this song clearly is, uh, is clearly prophetic. And ultimate is, the ultimate fulfillment of it is found in this time of tribulation where they come to a complete end, where they have nowhere else to go. See, we remember that the Israelites' relationship with God were established in covenants. One covenant established was without condition. It was unconditional, the Abrahamic covenant. God came to Abraham. He said, you follow me. And I'm just going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make of you a, a, bring out of you a, a mighty people. And uh, just because he followed the Lord, not based off of how closely or how rightly he followed. Because we know he didn't always do right, did he? Abraham messed up plenty of times. But the, the covenant in that way was unconditional. But there was another covenant later on they would make, the Mosaic covenant. And it came uh, alongside of the first, but it had conditions. And because of Israel's disobedience to that covenant, it required God to pour out His judgment. And we see that's coming to fruition here in verse number or chapter 15 through Revel, uh, of Revelation. While we saw it as different, different uh, punishment would come throughout the Old Testament, its final uh, conclusion is here in chapter 15 and on of Revelation. But there's a second song of Moses in the Old Testament, uh, and it also has relevance for this moment that we're reading about as well. It's in Exodus chapter 15. In Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 18, Moses is leading the people of Israel in a song of praise after the nation was saved uh, from Pharaoh's armies. The Lord had just closed the Red Sea over the armies and kept them safe on the other side. And for this, we'll read in chapter 15 of Exodus, and we'll pick up in verse number 9 through 13, and then verses 16 through 17. And this song says, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoils. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with the, thy wind, the sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Uh, thou stretched out, stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. Fear and dread shall fall upon them by the greatness of thine arm. Uh, they shall be as still as stone till thy people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over uh, which thou hast purchased. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, uh, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. See, this song pictures is a picture of what will happen in the last days as well, because in fact, the entire Exodus experience has uh, similarities or likenesses unto the end times as well. The picture of tribulation. Exodus is a story of Israel escaping slavery by fleeing into the desert from a determined army. And ultimately, it was through miraculous judgments and God's mighty hand that he brings Israel to himself to dwell safely in the promised land. 
And so in this heavenly chorus, uh, sings the, when it sings the song of Moses, which might actually have both elements of these songs to an extent as well, because they're both relevant. On one hand, the Lord is fulfilling His promise to bring vengeance and judgment to, against Israel for their sin. But on the other hand, He's also going to rescue His people from the Antichrist in the end. And in the next few chapters of Revelation, explains ex- explains exactly how the Lord does that. So as we consider this, we make sense of all of this by understanding how these songs are assigned. We have a heavenly scene communicating something about what is going to take place in the end during this tribulation period through these songs. The first song is about Jesus, indicating that it's indicated by its songs being sung by believers to believers. The song communicates that Christ's return is imminent and that His time of rule is near as well, that He alone is worthy of the praise and worship, so on and so forth. But we also find that this song of Moses, it speaks of how what God has promised to do is coming to pass and what He has promised to keep them from is going to come to pass as well. So the promises of God is something to be worshipped about. And even though the promise on the one hand is that of judgment and punishment, it is ultimately an encouragement to one in the end. Why? Because if God kept His promise to bring judgment and punishment, then guess what He's also going to keep His promise about? To bring redemption and to bring grace as well. And so... The songs of Moses are assigned to a completely different group during the second half of tribulation. Those who have not trusted the Lord and those who have not uh, put their faith in Him, but to see that uh, in, in Israel, but to see that God's promises all the way across the board are always true and always right. And as we're running out of time tonight, I want to move on and, and quickly just say thirdly tonight that God's justice will be displayed as well. As we read verses 5 through the last of the chapter, it says, And after that I looked, and uh, behold, the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in purple and white linen, having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, and liveth, uh, who liveth for ever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from, the, from His power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So the next part of the sign transitions to the temple in heaven, the tabernacle opening, it says. The heavenly realm, in the heavenly realm stands this temple, similar to that of what Moses would have uh, instructed to build for Israel under the law. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews says that the one here on earth was a likeness of the one in heaven as well. Let me read Hebrews 9, verses 23 through 24. Hebrews 9, 23 says, And it was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures or patterns or examples of it, uh, figures uh, as, uh, of the true, but into the heavens itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So in the tabernacle on earth resided several elements. It resided the, the, uh, the ark, 
And on the ark was the mercy seat, and upon uh, the, uh, the top, which uh, the name given to the top, or which was the, the mercy seat was the top of the ark, uh, the lid of the ark, if you may. This is where the glory of God would rest and reign as well. In fact, Ezekiel 28 tells us uh, that uh, Satan himself, when he, before he was cast out, was originally the, one of the cherubs who guarded the mercy seat in heaven as well. And so the Shekinah glory of God dwelled in the earthly tabernacle resting on top of the mercy seat. But at a point in Israel's history, the glory of the Lord left the temple, right? The temple is, is, uh, is ransacked and the ark is taken out. The glory of the Lord leaves. And in fact, the glory of the Lord has not rested in an earthly temple uh, since that point, even in this point in the age of the Gentiles either, and won't until it's over. It won't return, according to Ezekiel, until the kingdom begins and the new temple is built in the millennial reign. So now as the Lord prepares to pour out his final wrath upon Israel and the world, the Bible tells us he opens up the tabernacle that's in heaven, and he does so as a sign. And Ezekiel saw that day coming. We read this in Ezekiel 45, verses 5 through 9. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read those verses, but if you want to jot those down and read those later, Ezekiel prophesied this taking place. And so the next part of the sign communicates that the time for the Lord to finish with his wrath and ultimately return to dwelling with Israel has come. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says the seven angels came out of the temple. They had the seven plagues. Uh, In verse number 7, one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven gold vials full of wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. In verse number 8, it says the temple was filled with the smoke of of the glory and power of God. And so these angels emerge with these vials of final judgment to pour out. The seventh trumpet, as we've already heard, sounds. And when the seventh trumpet sounds, it is the entirety of the seven vial judgments. As we said, each judgment, uh, sets of judgments, kind of like those Russian nesting dolls, right? Sitting within the other. And, uh, and now we see these vials being prepared in heaven so that the final trumpet is, a, a trumpet is about to blow and God's wrath is going to be poured out. We see all throughout Scripture that God's wrath is commonly referred to as something that can be poured out. But it's interesting here to think that vials or bowls worth of God's wrath have been stored up. Talk about some some things that need to be dealt with. It's like uh, when uh, you are called into the boss's office at work and he pulls out this whole list. You've accumulated several things. You've got your file, and it's got this warning and this warning and this write-up and that write-up. And he says, now let's address all these things. Israel had stockpiled a lot to be able to fill up seven vials worth of judgment. And um, so Paul wrote in Romans, in fact, Romans 2 verses 5 through 6, but after thy hardness and impotent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath, against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. And so Paul wrote there in Romans that because of their hard and uh, impotent heart, they had treasured up, they had stored up for themselves the wrath of God. But look at verse number eight. Interesting thought here and one thing to consider as well. Verse number eight, as we close, it says, And the temple was filled with the smoke of the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple until, it says, the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So these angels come out of the temple. All of a sudden, the temple is filled with smoke representing God's glory and His power. 
And then the Lord himself won't allow anyone to enter into the temple until these, these judgments have come to a completion. Now, when we consider the temple that God left for his people here on earth, who normally went into the temple? The priest, particularly the Holy of Holies. It was the high priest, right? And Jesus is the great high priest. And so we would, if we assume that the heavenly tabernacle works in similar ways as the earthly one, then we must also conclude that no priest is entering into the temple as well. And since Jesus, the high priest, is not entering into the temple, when the high priest entered into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, he was doing so for what? To be an intercessor between the people of God and God himself, to bring the sacrifices unto them and to atone for sin, to bring atonement for sin. And so if Jesus cannot enter into the temple, then he cannot go before the Lord to make intercession. And if he can't make intercession, then no grace can be offered. And if no grace can be offered, then it, then it solidifies what we considered last week, that the time for God's grace to be brought unto people to trust him as Savior has come to an end. Witness has come to a conclusion, and uh, therefore now his, his saving grace has come to an end, at least until the last part of the tribulation period as well. And so remember, chapter 15 is a transition chapter leading us out of the midpoint from the first half of tribulation all the way into the last part of the tribulation period as well. And it tells us how the second half of tribulation will go. go. These vile judgments, these bold judgments will take place, I believe, near the end of this time. And until they are finished, there's no opportunity left on, for faith on earth now. And now the end of this chapter, in verse number 15, we officially leave the middle point of tribulation. And the last half of, 17, of these seven years are going to take place as we move into chapter 16. And as, with, as we saw in the middle point of tribulation... The middle point of tribulation was one event after another that kind of intertwined with it and each other and intermingled with each other. They were layered on top of each other. As we move into chapter 16, 17 and 18, on through the rest of the book, we're going to find that these last days of tribulation are much in the same. While we read events in 16, events in 18 are happening simultaneously. In chapter, things in chapter 17 are happening at a later, later point. And, and so we've we got to do our, our due diligence to make sure that we have posts, signposts, and, and timeposts to be able to make sure we are following along in the process at the correct way. And so we'll have plenty of graphs to be able to, graphics to be able to follow and, and pictures to be able to see where we're going along as well. But as the middle of tribulation, the end of the seven years involves this complex set of events that overlap, overlap as well. And so we'll lay out those events in sequence and understand the cause and the effect of them all. But this last half of tribulation, really the only thing that's really focused on is the, is the battle, the battle of Armageddon. And why is that? If God spent so much time on the first half and that midpoint of tribulation, why does he, he jump right towards the end? Uh, because really all we, all we need to know that's taking place in those last three and a half years as Daniel told us, that, the, that Satan would be given the power to, 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 to bring uh, wrath unto the people of that day. He'd have a short time for that time, times and half a time, that three and a half year. He's going he's gonna to have his, his way for a period of time, but it's a short time. 
There's going to be martyrdom that takes place. The unbeliever is going to have relative peace, but it's all going to end with this, con- this conclusive battle, the battle of Armageddon, which we'll start, t- we'll start learning about as we move into verse, chapter 16 next week. Our Father, we thank you for this evening, and we thank you for the opportunity to be able to study your word. And we ask now that you'd help us as we continue to study, as we come to the concluding chapters of this, this book, that uh, if, at, at, the, at the very least, Lord, that our studies will help us to see uh, your hand at work and your power on, dis, in, on display. Uh, the fact that you uh, have a plan and that you made promises and that you keep them. And that if you will keep promises that result in wrath or judgment for your people, for the apple of your eye, for your chosen people, If you're good and just and perfect to do that, then you're good and just and perfect to keep all of your promises as well. And God, we serve you as a mighty, wonderful God. And Lord, I ask now that you help these verses, this study to help us to uh, just uh, solidify that in our hearts about how good you are and how mighty you are. Lord, we praise you, we love you, and uh, we thank you for uh, your word that instructs. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a prayer request card that hasn't yet been turned in, if you hold it up high, uh, Brother Jonathan's in the back. He'll collect it as he makes his way up. Looks like there's two right here. And uh, one more right there, Brother Jonathan. I'll read these here this evening. Hope that you'll jot them down. Make them a matter of prayer this evening as well. And then we'll go to the Lord in prayer tonight. Um, Let's see. Point Dexter has an update here. David uh, Mattis has fully recovered, and uh, has, uh, never, his wife never uh, got it, never got COVID during that time as well. So we'll update that, but we praise the Lord tonight uh, for that situation there as well. Uh, the Reamers are asking prayer uh, for their niece, uh, Chris uh, McMahon. And, is that McMahon, is it right? And uh, has, uh, ha- her cancer has returned. And uh, so their niece, Chris McMahon, to cancer has returned. She is saved, and so we praise the Lord for that. And, uh, but uh, be in prayer for that situation, for the cancer. And then an update on their friend, Dean uh, Leslie, is doing well. And so we praise the Lord with them about that. Uh, Miss Tana's asking prayer. Um, Michelle, say the last name. Where are you at, Miss? Uh, Michelle Cotton? Okay. Sure. So she's continuing to take care of all the paperwork and all that. So Michelle Cotton, and be in prayer for that situation. Uh, Miss Tan has a blood test coming up, and uh, so uh, be in prayer for that as well. And then uh, Jen Walker um, has an update. Um, Kim is Coates, is that, is that right? Uh, is home and uh, from rehab, doing much better. So we praise the Lord in that situation as well. Uh, Ms. Flowers asking prayer. Don uh, asked to, to remember Joey in our prayers. She's having problems with her blood sugar. So please keep Mrs. Mrs. Joey in your prayers that the Lord would just touch her body and heal her. Um, Jonathan Wilhelm's asking prayer um, for his job situation. And uh, what's the last part of that, Jonathan? That God's will be done. God's will be done, okay. And. Sure. All right, we pray for that. Praise him, uh, the Lord for her parents' safe uh, return home from their trip as well. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, Larry Whitworth is asking uh, prayer. Linda Gordon, her husband Don, and son Brian 
uh, are both veterans. They're both disabled and need uh, help with some VA benefits. And so we pray that the Lord will open up some doors for help there as well. And uh, it says, uh, where Larry's at, it says, please pray for me, trying to help them um, with a DAV. Uh, God's help, they'll be able to get better benefits for them. And so just be in prayer for him as, they tr- as he tries to help. Pray for them to have those doors open as well. Uh, this one doesn't have who it's from, but uh, it says Miss Marie Key will be having uh, a procedure done on her heart. That hasn't yet been set, but it should be soon, so be in prayer for that. And then be in prayer for Callie and uh, some of the rest of the family as well who are sick. And so be in prayer for them during this time. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for the Lord's blessings and uh, that he would just uh, honor and and uh, hear our request here tonight. You can find yourself a prayer partner if you'd like or pray by yourself. But let's pray for as long or for as little as we'd like here this evening. And then we'll be dismissed after that. One more that was tucked away in my Bible. I almost forgot. Miss Sabrina is not here tonight. She's asking prayer. She's got a toothache that's giving her some serious headaches as well at this time. So be in prayer uh, for Miss Sabrina and uh, for that situation as well. But let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight and uh, ask the Lord's blessings on these things.